So why I'm writing a novel is the show where you join me, Oliver Brackenbury, on the journey of writing my next novel, from first ideas all the way to publication and promotion. In this one-man reality show, I'll share with you my ever-evolving thoughts and feelings on how I write, being a writer, and everything that entails at each stage of the process. I'll also interview special guests, and when people send them in, I'll answer listener questions. If you're the kind of person who likes to learn how things are made and get to know the people making them, then this is the show for you. I'd like to say a quick thank you to our Patreon supporters who make this show possible. Patrons receive perks like me coming over and jiggling the toilet handle for you. That's right, if you're a patron and you got one of those toilets where you kind of have to jiggle the handle, I'll take care of that for you. And if you're not a patron already, you can check out all the other perks and exclusive content over at patreon.com slash so I'm writing a novel. So okay, we have a story outline episode. It's been a minute since I've done one of those, and so I'm going to do a little recap if you don't feel like hearing the recap, that's cool. Just skip ahead to approximately 3 minutes and 53 seconds. Untitled Sword and Sorcery Novel by Oliver Brackenbury. <laughs> God, I will sort that title out one day. Untitled Sword and Sorcery Novel by Oliver Brackenbury takes place across 17 stories, which are divided amongst four quarters of the novel. Each quarter kind of riffing more or less on different sections of sword and sorcery history. The first quarter, that is the introduction of Vo, a barbarian woman from a far northern island where weird magic kept her and her people's arch enemies at each other's throats unable to leave for centuries. And it's in the very first tale where she becomes the first person in all those centuries to undo the magic and find a way off, vowing to go kill the wizard that made it happen, because even though it's been centuries, Wizards live a long time. They tend to mess around with this kind of stuff. Uh, magic, I hear it's called, <laughs> in order to live longer. So yeah, that's what she figures. And off she goes in this first quarter where she's kind of keen to be a hero, like the ones that she was raised on stories of. By the end of this first quarter of the novel, Vo has had experiences which have allowed her to kind of actually become a hero, as such, only to discover that being a hero is not so great. It leaves her kind of cynical and deciding, you know what, instead of serving other people, I'm going to serve myself. Thank you very much. And she finds her way to a city known as Coltum, where she fast makes a new best friend called Teravan, a thief, with whom she becomes, you know, partnered as in business partners and good buddies. And we have a bunch of thieving, swashbuckling kind of adventures taking place mostly in and around the city of Coltum. By the end of this section, a lot of time has passed, you know, literally years. Vo and Teravan have had all kinds of adventures, and sadly, it has taken them to a place of falling out in a way that really is more about them growing apart, but Vo takes it quite personally and doesn't really listen to a lot of the very reasonable things Teravan brings up. So Vo storms off into the distance, into the wildlands, as it were, to try her hand at fighting exclusively for herself, never mind friendship, and being all about, uh, well, kind of being a warlord. Yeah, basically a warlord, bandit leader, whatever you want to call it. And that brings us into this third quarter, which we are going to be beginning talking about in this very episode. I have jokingly described this quarter of the novel as the Vonan stories, because it is here that I am thinking primarily of the great granddaddy of sword and sorcery, Conan the Barbarian, created by Robert E. Howard back in the 1930s. Because he is easily the most well-known sword and sorcery creation, I mean, there was a movie with Arnold Schwarzenegger for heaven's sakes. Two of them. <laughs> the second one wasn't so good. <laughs> but anyway, because of this, it can be very tempting for me not to bother describing him, really, or introducing him. 
And yet here I am about to tell you about several stories, which I wrote with him absolutely in mind. So the heck with it, here's a little something from Wikipedia to get us started. Conan is a Sumerian. The writings of Robert E. Howard, particularly his essay The Hyborian Age, suggests that his Sumerians are based on the Celts, or perhaps the historic Sumerians. Conan was born on a battlefield and is the son of a village blacksmith. Conan matured quickly as a youth, and by age 15 he was already a respected warrior who had participated in the destruction of the Aquilonian fortress of Venerium. After its demise, he was struck by wanderlust and began the adventures chronicled by Howard, encountering skulking monsters, evil wizards, tavern wenches, and beautiful princesses. He roamed throughout the Hyborian Age nations as a thief, outlaw, mercenary, and pirate. As he grew older, he began commanding vast units of warriors and escalating his ambitions. In his forties, he seized the crown from the tyrannical king of Aquilonia, the most powerful kingdom of the Hyborian Age, having strangled the previous ruler on the steps of his own throne. Conan's adventures often result in him performing heroic feats, though his motivation for doing so is largely to protect his own survival or personal gain. Okay, so honestly I think that's enough for our purposes here. An incredible amount has been written on the character and his creator, so if you want to go deeper, you're spoiled for choices. I don't even know where to begin recommending to you where to go for it. Instead, I think, I'll tell you a little bit about what the character means to me, since this flows into my own writing in this particular section of the novel in particular. I discovered Conan as a wee lad. I forget exactly how old I was, but I would think something around 9 or 10 through the Savage Sword of Conan comic magazine put out by Marvel, which definitely was made with a little bit more of an adult audience in mind, I think, than I was at the time. Did my middle school mind drop its metaphorical jaw at the sight of people getting cleaved in half and at women's extremely visible cleavage in various pages? Yes. But even in those pre-internet days, sex and violence were easy enough to find in a variety of other avenues. What I think really made those Conan stories resonate with me was tales of an outsider who was tough, capable, self-assured, traveling across all kinds of wondrous and weird lands on amazing adventures that always seemed a bit more relatable to me in the way that his motivations were personal, as mentioned on Wikipedia there, and how Conan was tough and stood up for himself, but knew fear, you know, especially in the face of particularly ferocious weird magic, which was difficult for him to understand. I found this a lot more relatable than some of the more invulnerable, heroic with a capital H protagonists I'd encountered in other stories. There was also something of an appealing, logical, quote-unquote, I mean, who knows how logical it really is, order to Conan's tales. You see, even though he was not a capital H hero, as uh, Omar on the Wire likes to say, you know, a man's gotta have a code, and it was rarely explicitly stated, but Conan obviously had some strong feelings about being right by others. Uh, if someone hadn't actually actively antagonized him in some way and they were kind of bottom of the barrel, as it were, you know, a poorer person in the street, that kind of thing, he wouldn't rough them up and take their money. <laughs> you know, he wouldn't verbally crap all over them either. Like a lot of sword and sorcery protagonists, and this is one of the many things that makes me like the genre, Conan, generally speaking, punched up, or at least laterally. The villains of his stories tended to be people who were elevated by power unnatural, whether it be the more literal unnatural power of evil sorcerers, or the arguably unnatural power of kings and, you know, wealthy merchants. 
Add in the wondrous elements of the world he passed through, elements which were scarce enough to remain special by and large, although gosh, there were a lot of giant apes and giant snakes. <laughs> and this was, yeah, this is what I connected to. And as an adult, I still appreciate basically all of that. As chance would have it, beyond the occasional excerpt I think they probably put in the comics now and again, I didn't actually read any of Robert E. Howard's Conan prose or any of his other prose until about five years ago when I just thought about it. I thought about those old comics when I was at the Merrill Collection, my beloved archive of speculative fiction in Toronto, and I was like, man, I should, I should read the actual stories those comics were riffing off of or even were directly adapting. As with so many who came before me, Reading Howard's prose was like being struck by a goddamn lightning bolt. You know, yeah, he wrote to get paid. He wrote to sell stories to magazines to just try and make a gosh darn living. And sometimes some stories feel a little rushed in places or feel a little repetitious, and you're kind of like, yeah, I think he had to get this one out to make a car payment. But that doesn't change the fact that his prose was very unique and did a lot of really impressive stuff, which I'm going to get in more detail about, I think, in a future episode way down the line when it gets to me actually writing this novel as opposed to outlining it. For now, let me just say that Howard's prose moves quickly, is vibrant, and you always know it's him. So I'm gonna have to think real hard when I get to the actual writing about how much I want to riff off of his style. Many have tried before me, most have failed. And ultimately, I think it is better for someone, even when they're riffing off of something that really inspires them, to try and write in their own voice. This issue of pastiche, of inspiration and homage versus, say, copying or terrible imitation is most on my mind in this section of the novel, which begins with a story that is absolutely me riffing off of my favorite Robert E. Howard Conan story, People of the Black Circle. In relaying how I outline the story, I'll be discussing things like using index cards to outline the tale, accidentally finding myself writing a magic system, maybe? And choosing a thematic conflict instead of a thematic statement. Alright, let's see how I did. <laughs> So yes, People of the Black Circle, a novella-length tale that was serialized originally in Weird Tales magazine. If you want to hear me break down in detail why I think it's such a wonderful story, and especially how it's so much better than what feels like a milk toast pirate-themed copy by Lynn Carter, Conan the Buccaneer, you can check out episode 4 of this very podcast. That milk toast pirate version of the story I'm inspired by was on my mind actually quite a bit while writing this. In fact, this entire section of the novel, I was thinking much more than in any other one, and even though I haven't outlined the fourth section, I know I will not be thinking about it as much as the fourth section, uh, had me thinking more than any other section about crappy surface-level copying versus inspired drawing upon, you know, thematic ideas and building upon them, you know, good stuff. <laughs> <laughs> the good stuff! You can tell I write, I'm so good with words. This was even expressed in my holding title, which, as with all of my holding titles, is in danger of becoming the final title. I always get kind of a Stockholm Syndrome with these things when I have them long enough. The holding title of My People has two meanings. First off, it's my people, dot dot dot, you know, my people of the black circle. 
And then it is also kind of the main character's jam in this whole thing, which is, you know, Vo sort of saying, my people, you know, because like in the original story where Conan is motivated almost exclusively in the first part of the story by his desire to do right by his bandits he's been leading his people so too is Vo going to be motivated primarily certainly in the start by trying to do right by her people her bandits knowing that my riffing on people of the black circle would involve lifting story elements and archetypes at least not direct characters I knew I really needed to make sure that Vo was Vo even if she was in kind of a Conan mode and so the very first page of my work on this I wrote Vo won't be a Conan, she'll be herself, in a mode where she distrusts forming close friendships, wants control, wants the party, so to speak, of raiding and looting to never end, relies on her strength and cunning, that's something people often miss about Conan, he's quite clever, is a barbarian drawing upon her growing up in an isolated and barbarous environment, and perhaps feeling fed up with storytelling and philosophizing, yet unable to avoid falling into either sometimes because they're at her core, events of the previous quarter of the novel having put her off a bit with storytelling. She cannot will herself into being an entity of pure thoughtless id, even if she's convinced that's what she wants. This is a self-destructive path that takes her on to the gibbet in just three stories, though we'll hint at there being more. So yeah, those were my big picture thoughts going into this entire quarter of the novel, really, but in particular people. Then I made a quick little side note here about how one thing I really loved about People of the Black Circle was that it was always thundering forward, forward, forward. There was no going back in that tale at any real point, and so that was going to be important in this tale, and that'll come up more later. But after that brief aside, my number one thought about this story was length. I knew from the beginning that because I'd be riffing on a novella-length story, I would want this to be a novella-length story. And in my head, that meant around 20,000 words. But then when I got here and it was time to do the thing, I checked and oh my goodness, People of the Black Circle is actually approximately 31,075 words. <laughs> this fact collided with another thing, which is that I knew I wanted to try outlining a prose story the way I do TV and film scripts, using index cards on a big corkboard. And as a kind of practice, because I was like, how much do I put on a card for prose? Screenplays, I've got that down to a science, but prose, I'm not sure. I broke down People of the Black Circle and it came to 77 index cards or story beats, the same as an hour-long pilot, when I do it anyways. I do 14 cards per act, 5 acts, 5 times 14 gets you 77. Well, getting to a really good draft of a pilot script, like at least something worth submitting, usually at least 5 or 6 drafts for me, minimum, is like 6 weeks of full-time writing, and i that's intimidating, and I, ooh, too much, too much. So I got a little concerned, and I was like, oh, maybe I should adjust my vision for the novel here. Maybe I should just do a couple of other 5k stories and save the, you know, my people uh, thing as a self-published standalone, or maybe do I trim it back so it's more like a 30-minute pilot script? Ooh, Actually, maybe there's something there I thought to myself, okay, cool, cool, especially because I, you know, my last pilot I wrote was a 30-minute kind of action sci-fi thing, and I really liked how it moved quickly, so maybe that format would work well for this. So I broke it down to three acts at 14 cards per act, got me to 42 cards instead of 77, 55% as much. 55% of people with Black Circle's word count of 31,075 is 17,092 words, but knowing us, it would probably translate into more, I wrote in the margins. I presented that math not because I expect anyone to ever imitate it, and I, in fact, might even recommend against it, just because it's nonsense. 
it's like a self-soothing exercise I did to just feel comfortable and confident with moving forward. It is not something I would prescribe to anybody ever, especially because I got further in the process, realized that three acts wasn't a good structure for what I was trying to tell, made it four acts, splitting the difference, I guess, adding another 14 cards. So ultimately it wound up being 56 cards. If you think that's a lot of detail, I agree, which is why for this particular story outline episode, I'm going to kind of zoom out and be less detailed than I am in all the others, if only because this story is approximately four times as long as any of the other ones I'm talking about, and I don't think either of us wants a four-hour episode of the podcast talking about a single story. If you hear a detail in this and think, oh, well, what was the story behind that? Or, oh, can you tell me more about it? By all means, please email me at so I'm writing a novel at gmail.com or tweet at me on Twitter at at so underscore writing. That's at so writing. And I'll address it either on Twitter or on the show, whichever makes the most sense to me. Before I go further in the story proper, I will address two things related to the craft side of the index card decision. So first off, I chose to do the index card thing because I just wanted to try doing it for pros and this felt like a good sized experiment for it. Short stories felt too short to me. I could keep them all in my head pretty easily, even the more complex ones. And the whole novel, scary, very scary. <laughs> so I thought, okay, novella, that's a good length. The other thing was, I really wanted this thing to move like a TV pilot, something I'm very familiar with. And it felt like, okay, then let's use my tools from TV writing to do this prose thing that I want to move quickly like TV. When I was discussing this with a buddy who you've heard on the show a couple of times, Nat Webb, he was like, how do you know how much to put on the cards? How does that work? And I thought about that and I was like, well, partly it's just you learn from practice is kind of a muscle reflex. And as I say, I'm very comfortable with that for television. And then for this, I thought, well, I'll, I'll follow that reflex, but also I'll think about what got me to the reflex, which was essentially asking myself on any given card, what is the main thing happening? You know, what is the, the key piece of information that I'm trying to convey to the reader or the viewer when we're talking about TV? Because uh, it can be something really short. It can be something that takes a moment. You know, Bobby shoots Billy. Or it can be huge. It can be the collapse of the Roman Empire. Or, you know, I write it, the Roman Empire collapses. <laughs> and in that case, it's probably a montage or something. But still, either way, you have something that can happen in a moment or something that takes years or centuries. And you just say, okay, that's the main thing. And anything that you write underneath that header on the card is information related to that thing or riffing off of that thing and then if it's something completely unrelated like say bobby shoots billy and then it's like janie eats a piece of cake well unless she eats that cake because bobby just got shot or because i want to have her eating that cake in the foreground to show that nobody could hear bobby getting shot like if it doesn't relate in any direct way to bobby getting shot that's a new card that's a whole new piece of information you know move on that does not belong underneath bobby got shot and so that's my approach the other thing here is that I chose to use larger 4x6 index cards because I felt like, well, it's prose. I might have all kinds of notes of description and things that wouldn't be necessary for a screenplay. So, uh, bigger cards, yes. Now, luckily, I have a very big corkboard, but this also made me limited to having four acts and no more, unless I wanted to kind of have the fifth act come up on the side in a really awkward way because the board is only so tall. <laughs> Sometimes very mundane things inform your creative decisions. The benefits of using index cards were the usual ones from TV and film. First up, you can move pieces of story around and rearrange them much more easily. And I did have to do this a couple of times. I found it quite useful. I was quite grateful for it. 
Second, you can see how much of the story is left to be filled out a lot more easily. There's literally gaps on the board that you need to fill and you can see where they are. Thirdly, I find it very useful to keep track of multiple storylines by assigning each of them a highlighter color. You know, yellow for A story, orange for B story, pink for C story. Usually that's it. Sometimes there's like a distant, you know, little D story just setting up continuity maybe or something for future episodes that's in blue. And using those colors also allows me to see how much real estate in the overall story each storyline is getting. Now, that's not something I did for this because that's not how prose stories tend to work. Certainly not self-contained in a novella like this. But I did use those colors to keep track of the various couples. This wound up being a story about four couples, fundamentally. <laughs> And so I was like, okay, how much time am I spending with each? And let's make sure the majority of it is with Vo and the guy, which I'll get to, which is way more important. And it was also very important to me to actually look at those colors and make sure I was using them to indicate to myself how much I was leaping around because I needed to minimize that. Since leaping around in prose the way you do in television drives readers, in my experience, nuts. Certainly it was an issue with early drafts of the short story called Vo that began this whole project. Which brings me to the only real downside I experienced during this experiment, which was using my tool that I associated entirely with TV and film writing, kept tweaking my TV and film writing muscles that were like, okay, uh, you've been in the scene for almost five minutes. That's too much. You get moving, chop it up. Yeah, cut around. <laughs> <laughs> Checking with somebody else, uh, somewhere else, see what they're doing. Yeah, people don't like you switching POV and location that often, on average. I mean, I'm making a broad statement here in prose. Now, you might be thinking, hey, hang on, I've read those Game of Thrones novels and, you know, chapter to chapter. It's like, yeah, chapter to chapter, not page to page, which is more the translation of the kind of cutting around you get in TV and film to prose than chapter to chapter. Final thing on index cards, if you would like to see close-ups of some of my index cards as well as shots of the entire board in progress and then eventually when it was done, you can see that on Patreon. Just become a patron. Yeah, that's kind of behind the scenes bonus stuff you get, along with me jiggling the handle on your toilet. Okay, so back to the actual storytelling. After I did all this flim-flam with length and method of outlining, I was like, okay, so what are some big picture things that I just know from my heart? I've been thinking about this quite a bit. So, you know, things like I felt one character's death was very perfunctory and I wanted the love interest, the Devi Yasmina, the princess, to have gotten to do more and played a role in that death. Other than changes, I knew there were certain scenes from a famous film uh, with George Clooney and Jennifer Lopez out of sight, which I really wanted to have. I'll get into that when I get into that point in its cards. I also knew I really wanted that ruthless momentum that I keep mentioning that I just love from the story I'm riffing on, blah, 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 blah. Then I moved on and was like, okay, do I want to play with the same or similar cast of archetypes? Dare I go full Lynn Carter, right? Because Lynn Carter in Conan the Buccaneer basically just copied the archetypes. You know, you've got Conan, which is his own thing. And then you have like the proud princess, a lesser sorcerer, the lesser sorcerer's partner, a greater sorcerer or sorcerers in brackets, a scheming noble. The protagonist has their own fighting men. And then the protagonist has an old pal that will show up just when he needs one. Ultimately, the old pal didn't survive, but I did wind up playing with those archetypes and remixing them and moving them around as a way of bringing a little variety and my own ideas and values into the story. Then I made a quick bullet point list of things I really wanted to play with in the story. The idea of Vo as a feared leader of men like Conan in the original story. The idea of that time out sexy moment from out of sight, which again, I'll talk about more later. The idea of love being a motivator for some of the villains, as in people, and so on and so forth. Then I thought, okay, what are Conan's qualities as expressed in this particular tale, followed by what are Vo's qualities that I will want to focus on in ours. I liked how Conan's loyalty to his men was a big thing, and how his otherness saved him once or actually I think it was twice at key points in the tale. Classic sword and sorcery thing. Who you are 
is who you are and it is how you get ahead in this world. It's not something that holds you back that you have to change to fit in. And that played across nicely into my list of qualities of Vo I really wanted to have in this, such as her otherness being of that remote island and her cynicism that can kind of translate into a sort of Conan-esque cunning, her distrust of authority and, you know, anybody who's rich, basically, her impatience, which feels like a great thing to help drive the story forward with that ruthless pacing I described, and the fact that she kind of fancies herself as more or less being in a perfect way. She's living for stasis instead of finding a resolution as she did in her quote-unquote heroic days. This life is all she wants, and she's full of passion and vitality with feelings of wanderlust and desire for conquest and raiding. But I still wanted to keep something that's been there from the start, which is that she cries freely and is unashamed of emotion. Having worked through this stuff, I asked myself, okay, so here's some building blocks. What people of the Black Circle-like story could run with these qualities of Vo and these you know, qualities of Conan that maybe I want to lift for this tale? Who would be the princess, quote-unquote, slash love interest that could mirror, invert, oppose, you know, be attracted to Vo? Because for everything else going on in People of the Black Circle that I really loved that made me want to write my own story, it's the, I guess, enemies to lovers is the term people like to throw around, relationship arc for the princess and Conan. One thing I knew for sure was that I wanted my Princess Yasmina to absolutely have a journey, you know, real evolution in the story, more so than I felt the character who was inspiring me got in the original. From here, I made a lot of brainstorming notes, which I'm not going to read through all of them, but they did eventually get me to a place where I was like, okay, I think I need an idea to guide this thing. Now, if you've listened to previous story outline episodes, you probably know what I'm going to say. You're going to think, ah, this is where he talks about a thematic statement, a single sentence, basically, that makes an argument that the story is arguing and exploring. Well, I didn't feel a thematic statement was what I wanted this time around. I didn't feel like I had a specific thing I wanted to argue through the story. And coming back to the index card thing, I was in a bit more of a TV mode. See, most of the screenplays I've ever written have been TV pilots. And when you're designing a TV series, you don't want a statement because a statement is argued and resolved usually in one episode, right? You want a thematic conflict. You want a question that can be answered and explored from many, 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 many different angles through many, 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 many different stories because you want to be able to explore it through many seasons, right? Get that syndication deal, though that's a bit less common these days due to lower episode runs, streaming, yada, yada. That's another discussion. Anyway, the concept of a thematic conflict, as I understand it, came from William Rabkin's book, Writing the Pilot. And if you're curious to learn more about that whole thing, you can go there. But the classic example used in the book is Buffy the Vampire Slayer. And there, it's not something that was invented by, <laughs> by Joss Whedon and Buffy the Vampire Slayer, let's be clear, but that was used to drive just a few stories, as anybody who watched the show can tell you, it went on for a while. And it's this, this conflict that drove, you know, the next 150-some episodes of the show. How do you choose between your deepest personal desire and your obligation to the world? Right? Because that was the whole thing with Buffy. She had a deep personal desire to live a fun, enriched, normal person's life, but she had an obligation to the world to defend it from super weird stuff that totally messed up her desire for that normal life as a slayer of vampires. And that's the key, right? You need to have a conflict in the question that you're asking. It cannot be something that's just like, you know, the sky's blue, okay. <laughs> and it needs to be something kind of thorny that can be explored from many angles. How do you choose between practical needs and impractical dreams? It's something that came out of my brainstorming that I just glossed over. 
and it wound up staying as the thematic conflict for the entire story. Without getting into too much detail, I will say that this grew out of things I was figuring out about the characters and what they wanted and what motivated them, not me as it sounds in this recording, just going back to the William Ramkin book and kind of copying the Buffy one. <laughs> it's a classic for a reason, what can I say? And even though I'm only telling the one story with this thematic conflict, people, you know, my riff on People of the Black Circle, I'm not going to use this to drive a whole book of short stories, let's say. I guess that would be the equivalent of a TV series. And I'm ultimately glad that I went with a conflict over a statement, because even though, yeah, I could I could make a novella-length story be about a statement, there's just so many more characters charging around in this. It feels strange to me to think, oh yes, okay, and then ultimately only one of them will be right, or only one group will be right. Thus, quote-unquote, proving my statement. I just felt like, yeah, you're going to see some people thrive and some people lose, and ultimately my protagonists are going to come out on top, more or less. That's what I wanted in this story. But I didn't want to suggest that there was only one way to live, that there was only one true path when you have to deal with practical needs or impractical dreams, because I felt like the answer to that question fluctuates wildly depending on your circumstances. And whether it's a statement or a conflict, you, the writer, really want to believe in what you're saying or asking as being an intriguing question to ask. Otherwise, it'll come through in the writing and you won't be as inspired. So yeah, then I went back to loose outlining, did a whole bunch more of that, got to a place where I was like, okay, I think I've got a geography here where I want like a wizard's tower on the far left of the straight line of this story, a battlefield in the middle where before our story began, those bandits got ravaged, a lot of them killed, the rest taken into slavery. And then on the, in like the middle of the line, and on the far right of the line, would be a dig site in a mountain. Don't worry, that'll all make sense later. And that kind of gave me an Act 1, 2, and a 3, right? Act 1, the Master's Tower, you know, the Wizard's Tower, whatever. Act 2, the Battlefield. Act 3, the Dig Site. And then eventually when I was like, wait a minute, I think I need four acts here. <laughs> Act 3 and 4 kind of got split along, you know, what's going on at the Dig Site. But yeah, I basically had my stage, and I did a bit more call and response for myself. I mean, most of this brainstorming that I refer to is me asking questions, answering them, and then going, well, what new questions does that invite, and what questions are still left? In the process of this call and response, I reached a point after setting the stage there, as I just described, where I realized, okay, I need to know who the different characters are called. I can't just keep going by vague archetypes, which is what I've been using in my notes up to that point. And if I want the names to be consistent, I probably want them to be based on real cultures from the world and our history, further riffing on People of the Black Circle, which takes place in a secondary world analog to basically the border between Afghanistan and what was then India, now Pakistan. That was the region I had on my mind, but certainly not as it is in the contemporary world, more in kind of the period of antiquity where I roughly imagine this whole thing taking place. I'd like to give a shout out to my pal and a patron of the show, Tom Lewis, for giving me a lot of help with this and Daryl Quiog, a previous guest of the show who I've had the good fortune to befriend over time, who also gave me a lot of help with this. So yes, the entire cast of my story, their nations and nationalities, languages and namings and so on, roughly map to the Greco-Bactrian kingdom, a sort of Greco-Persian situation that happened way back when, the uh, Pathan subgroup, the uh, Gurjara, the Moria Empire, which is pretty cool, I recommend looking up them, M-A-U-R-A. YA. And then there's Vo from, you know, sort of the Shetland Islands. <laughs> her band of men, which I'll just, I'll keep saying men, but you know, I mean people really of all genders. Her band of men, I wanted to be very multicultural. And if you've listened to the outlining episodes for the previous quarter of the novel, you would know that kind of a running gag through all that was a group of barbarians who just kept rebranding themselves as being a whole new scary threat when it's the same guys, but 
different armor and like they've changed their clothes a little bit. I like the idea that Vo grabbed a bunch of them and led them across the lands to eventually find herself in the location of this story, having picked up people from all over. So it's a real multicultural bandit group, which I find more colorful and interesting and also way less offensive than doing what good old Howard did in the 1930s, which whatever, he was a man of his time, where he had the quote mad Afghulis that Conan was leading. Could the Afghulis and Afghulistan be Afghanis in Afghanistan? Who knows? <laughs> it's a mystery. Meanwhile, thanks again to Daryl for turning me on to a legend from the region, the real-life region, the legend of Guashbrari, the glacier-hearted queen, which I will link to where you can read that for free in the show notes, but I'll just say here, it heavily influenced the major supernatural element of the tale and the true history of what went on in the dig site that everybody's very excited about in my tale. Now that I had names for the characters and their peoples and a better idea of the geography coming out of that as well, I could do something that I really needed to do, which was to write the backstory of the story I was going to tell. I could take a whole bunch of my disparate notions about the present and be like, okay, how did we get here and how does what got us here influence the story I'm going to tell in the present of the tale? For anybody thinking, well, how do I know what to put in the backstory of my story? What's important? What isn't important? Well, does it relate to the actual story or is it just you being like, what color of shoes do they have? If it's the former, you need to know what it is. If it's the latter, you don't. One thing I'll mention from my backstory that I wrote for this tale, which helped me get a better idea of what the present was going to be and how it would all hang together and make any kind of sense, was something I like to do once in a blue moon, which is ask myself, what is the myth, the supernaturally infused, completely divorced from reality idea of what happened at a point in time? Then you would have the next layer, the legend. You know, it's basically meant to be history, but we all understand it's been embroidered a little bit. This is followed by the next layer, the history. Yes, this is the official tale of what happened. And yet, anybody who has ever studied history will tell you that history books also get embroidered and fiddle depending on who's writing them. And finally, we have the reality. So there can be four layers for something, and which characters believe which layer of the key event can be kind of a cool way of informing their actions and having a bunch of people who all believe they know the truth of something collide with each other and the reality of it. I applied this approach to kind of the main story driving my story, which is the tale of what's in that big mountain that people are digging in, and how did it get there, and what's left. Sooner or later, everybody in the story is motivated by wanting to know what the hell is in there. So I figured it was important I figured it out, and figured it out from a few different angles than just one literal truth. Anyway, I knew I was done working on the backstory when I felt like I'd answered enough questions to proceed with writing the present, and when I found myself increasingly asking myself stuff that was more to do with, like, characters expressing different angles and arguments to do with the thematic conflict, then I was thinking about practicalities of how they got here into the situations where they would be doing that. So then I did a bit more brainstorming, trying to answer questions about what the characters would do, blah blah, and that got me to finding out that some of my TV tricks didn't feel right for this, like trying to figure out the opening and ending of each act. The ending of each act being called an act out, the cool moment you end on to make people want to come back after the commercial, even if there's no commercials. Something about that just didn't work for me, and I still have trouble articulating it, to be honest. All I know is that I was writing and eventually my brain started to feel like undercooked oatmeal. Though I did at least come away with, at this stage, the very useful idea of looking at sorcery, at least in this story, as art. 
aka impractical dreaming. You can see how that comes back to the thematic conflict. But yeah, feeling the gears in my head grinding to a halt, I did something for the second time actually in the outlining of this tale. I took a break to work on something else, which is not something I'd allowed myself to do a lot of in this novel outlining. But yeah, I actually finished outlining stories two and three of this quarter of the novel before coming back to finish the first one, this one. I don't think I would have done this if this was a standard novel made up of chapters, as opposed to what it is, which is a short story cycle made up of short stories with broad continuity in the sense of how the character changes and evolves, but not a lot of like beat to beat, okay this has to happen before this happens continuity. Between the fact that I was outlining two other complete stories and just a lot of life happening, I ended up taking quite a long break. I put the story aside on May 31st of this year, 2022, didn't pick it up again until August 27th. As you can imagine, having that long of a break, I felt the need to review all of my notes from the beginning, which I did, and in the process of doing that, got my brain popping and I ended up putting in some index cards getting myself all the way up to 26 out of 56. At this point, I started hopping back and forth, back and forth between the index cards and the notebook, going as far as I could with the cards before I would start to feel kind of stuck and think, okay, there's some issues here I really need to figure out at a greater level of detail before I can fill in the rest of the spaces, go back to the notebook, work on those issues, get to a point where I'm comfortable, back to the board, and so on, until eventually I got to like 38 out of 56 cards and I just was able to go, yeah, okay, and answered a few more questions and pushed through to the end. Now before I do that thing I like to do, where I kind of tie together all the stuff I've talked about by running you through the outline, you know, nuts and bolts of all the beats beginning to end, I will bring up one more thing that came up in that back and forth and that brainstorming that I think is better discussed here, which is... I came dangerously close to coming up with a magic system, something I have largely rejected in my reading and certainly in my enjoyment of Sword and Sorcery, where by and large, magic does not have a system. It is more strange and unpredictable and dangerous, and very few things can be expected other than the fact that it will probably come at a terrible cost to somebody. And yet, as I was working through this and figuring out more and more about the characters and how they interact with the theme and each other and blah 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 blah, I just found something naturally cropped up where it was this idea of the arts, the dark arts, as metaphor for the arts. The impractical dream side of my thematic conflict. And once I had that in my mind, I started to think about how that would play into the way magic happens in the story. So with one magician, as you'll hear me outline in the detail in a minute, there is the idea of lacking inspiration and having to find a way to work with or without inspiration. Because if you want to produce art regularly, and especially if you need to produce it for, say, a deadline or some other pressing need, you need to find a way to be able to work on it to some degree practically any time, right? Not just when, you know, the wind passes through you. And in another scene where lesser sorcerers threaten our main characters, I got into the idea of how hacks just evoke past masters. It's a shortcut to effect. Aha, well, the obvious metaphor there with the arts is people who do nothing but bad pastiches and copies of old masters, just like my worst case scenario for what I myself would end up doing with Howard and Conan in these tales, in this tale in particular. But also there is a thing in some fiction regarding wizardry from the sword and sorcery canon that I like about how a magician might fake their name being that of a great deceased master. Oh, actually, I'm so-and-so. He never died as a way of you know, grasping for power. Or you might just invoke 
the spells and other works of old masters because they did the work and you're just going to copy paste it basically into your magical uh, tool set. And I liked that idea. And I liked the idea of taking it further than blending it with the artistic thing and being like, well, what if somebody just evokes old masters and they didn't even really understand them? They just got the surface level of them, you know, a shallow interpretation of their arts. And so the effect is less impressive. Yeah, I like that. And is it a magic system, capital MS, or is it just kind of an emotional logic to the thing? And I, I think it's more the latter. Not that magic systems are inherently bad. They're just not something I dig as a reader or that I seek to execute as a writer. So maybe I'm fooling myself. Maybe that is a magic system. I don't know. We'll get into it more in the story. Speaking of which, in the first quarter of the book, the point of view was always third person limited, kind of mounted over the shoulder of a new to the reader character who would have Vo pass through their lives in that particular tale. In the second quarter of the book, it was always third person limited, hopping back and forth between Vo and her new best friend, Turavan. In this third, the Vonan third, in which this tale falls, well, I was looking at Howard's tales and it varies from story to story, but certainly in people of the Black Circle, there's kind of an omniscient point of view happening. And so that's more or less what I'm going with here, although I'm still writing it kind of like third person limited mounted on the shoulders of different characters from scene to scene, and I'm trying not to leap around too much for reasons given. The thematic conflict remains, how do you choose between practical needs and impractical dreams? And you know, I've been tempted to rattle through all the major cast or give a whole bunch of backstory and stuff, but I think the best thing for me to do is to just have my stack of index cards and walk you through the story as if you were a fresh babe in the woods dropped in front of the book that has yet to be written to get the story. As I say, I will be giving you far less detail than will be in the actual tale, but I'm going to try and give you everything you need to follow the narrative. Sometimes I'll dip deeper on a card, especially if there's something interesting to discuss. Other times I will probably just read the headline and move on to the next one. Okay, so without further ado, here is holding title, My People, as it currently exists on September 19th, 2022. I have no doubt it will change quite a bit by the final version, but then that's part of the fun of these episodes. Eventually when you read the book, you can learn how it differed. Can you tell from all this preamble? I'm a little bit nervous. Gotta be honest, trying to condense this down for the podcast, it feels like a big challenge. All right, Oliver, shut up and get talking. <laughs> if this were a film, it would open on a black screen. Slowly, the contrast would turn up ever so slightly until you could kind of see the faintest outlines of some vaguely human shapes. And... As is a book, I will use prose to, giving away as little as possible, tell of how two people, two lovers, in order for them to survive in some form, one has to give themselves up to the other as a source of food, though not in the way we would expect. But yes, they are trapped in a place, and one has had to consume the other to survive. Card number two, we are introduced to Prodotus. Satrapus Prodotus, actually, he's a satrap of the, based on the Greco-Bactrian kingdom, which was kind of a Greco-Persian thing that existed for a while, Google it for fun. Basically, it was a leftover when Alexander the Great was dead, but there was still a whole bunch of Greeks that he dragged into Persian lands kicking around. And so I was thinking about both the Greeks and uh, an ancient version of Persian or Farsi, I should say, uh, that, uh, you know, I, I got a Persian friend to help me out, basically come up with something that's close enough for horseshoes and hand grenades and secondary fantasy worlds. Shout out to Misa Zai. Thanks, man. 
So yes, Prototus is a satrap or a kind of governor for the Tamesia Nesf kingdom. He is of the sort of Greco side of that uh, whole thing. And yeah, he runs the region in which our story is taking place, a kind of borderland with the other big kingdom, which I based on the Moria Empire, calling them the Yarma Empire. Simple enough. Prototus runs this border region on his country's side of things, and it is within this region that Vo has been causing all kinds of trouble, much to his consternation, but we'll get to that later. When we meet him, he's in his tent, part of a campsite at the base of this big mountain, and he's giving an engineer grief for surprising him in his tent as he checks on a clump of heavily dyed smokeweed. We don't know what that's about. A quick chat establishes the goal of cracking open the monastery built into the side of this mountain, and the difficulty and challenges you know, involved around that. Really, really tough, basically. They need more men, they need more animals, they need more tools, the engineer makes it clear. And then, Prodotus and the engineer both hear the sound of trumpets and horns and all that kind of stuff approaching. Ah, here they are now, Prodotus says. What? Why didn't you tell me, the engineer says. And then maybe there's a pithy line about not wanting to risk word of getting out. The Yarmans are crafty. You never know who they may have turned traitor or unwilling spy. We leave the tent and go on to the next card. Marching into the camp is the grand arrival of the queen, the empress, the ruler, anyway, let's say, of this nation of Tamisia Nesf. Her name is Malak Ye Dorost, which I'm sure I will shorten to MYD at a few points while I'm relaying this to you. Anyway, in come broken chained men first. These are Vo's men, survivors of the battle that took place a little before our story began. And from Prototus's point of view, essentially we see, you know, the great queen, you know, Malachia Dorost, on her palanquin, all kinds of soldiers and servants and so on is coming in with her. We learn quickly that the other satraps in the kingdom don't really respect her, don't really see her value, but Prototus does. Next card, the love of Prodotus and Malachi Dorost is established in their, you know, greeting each other, how they greet each other, the kind of conversation they have, a little bit about their love, establishing that each of them has a great respect for the other one's very practical way of looking at life and achieving things. It is also established, you know, he's like, where did you get all these slaves? And she's like, well, funny thing, I ran into that bandit queen who's been causing you all kinds of trouble lately, beat her army to a pulp, captured everybody who lived, didn't get Vo, unfortunately, but luckily I had a few of my best killers with me and I sent them after her. There's no way she'll survive. A fun thing in People of the Black Circle is that you don't see Conan for a while, and up until that point where he appears, he gets built up quite a bit. I thought it'd be fun to do that with Vo, and so here I have Prodotus respond to that thing of the killers being sent after Vo, saying, hmm, a half dozen, you say? We'll need to send more, I suspect. Malachie Dorost has only heard of Vo until the battle where she trounced Vo's army because Vo was not prepared for a full kind of procession, the kind that would be guarding an empress to just come through her turf where she'd been causing all kinds of problems for Prodotus all this time. But Prodotus has been dealing with Vo and has a better appraisal of how dangerous she is. From here we cut one more time to another faraway location. I think this is a little more forgivable since we're setting the stage for the story, but yes, we cut to another location, a chamber, a bed chamber, not a very grand one, within a tall tower, yes, a wizard's tower no less. In fact, a tower that contains a few wizards, and here we meet Selfgari and Spelzala, a man and a woman of the Napathian ethnicity, which is me just flipping around some letters with the Pathans, or Pashtun. 
This is a real-life ethnic group spread across mostly Afghanistan, but also Pakistan and India. Zelfgari and Spazala are two young sorcerers, students really, who are very much in love, something forbidden by their master who we have yet to meet. In the room there is a big window and a big bed and these two characters are arguing and that's all the detail I have for now, that's all I really feel the need for. Aside from their forbidden love, they've also been getting into texts they shouldn't have, such as Alomi Zorokrais's Book of Elders, which is a fun little reference, the name of a book from a shelf in Bloodstone, a classic sword and sorcery novel written by Carl Edward Wagner. Anyway, Zelfgari is all scared because he knows, you know, the master is coming to discipline him soon, and Spazala's like, oh, we should gang up on him, blah, 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 blah. he's not that great. But ultimately Zelfgari is like, no, 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 there he is at the door, go hide under my bed. And so Spazala goes and hides under the bed. There's maybe a faint sound of Sounds a bit fishy, not the sound that should be made by her hiding under the bed, but Selfgari has no time to think about it because aha, onto the next card, and in comes his master. His master is Rui Kalag. R-A-K, or Rick as I occasionally refer to him when I was writing things quickly, which is disrespectful, and I should not do that to my beautiful character, is of the same Persian-y side of my fake Greco-Bactrian kingdom as the Empress, and is in fact related to her. He's kind of what you might call a trust fund baby living out in this tower off the teat of the kingdom, specifically Prodotus, who is responsible for the region in which this tower sits. Is this a sly dig at how someone requires financial backing to have the time to really devote their life to art? Maybe. Anyway, he knows everything, and he's not just mad about the book. He's not just mad about Zelfgari and Spazala breaking his no love between students rule. They're his only two students, by the way. We haven't got like a whole academy going on. No, he's mad because he knows that, that love and Zelfgari listening to Spazala more than listening to him, essentially, that love, has led to selling the secret of the mountain, as they understand it, to Prodotus when Prodotus showed up while Rui Kalag was in a state of astral projection, more about that later, and Prodotus was demanding more in exchange for his financially supporting the Empress's dumb artist brother. Zelfgari, with a bit of encouragement from his lover Spazala, had told Prodotus their, well, what they thought was in the mountain, which was enough to seem like payment and lead Prodotus to organize the big work camp attempting an excavation of the monastery in the side of the mountain. That we saw earlier. So Rui Kalag is just raking Selfgari over the coals and promising to do all kinds of terrible things to him with his great power and makes him blubber, you know. Selfgari's like, no, 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 please, please, master, please. And at the sound of someone saying master, a woman's voice is heard and it's not Spazala. Yes, it's Vo who bursts out from under the bed where she had silenced Spazala and where she had been hiding before anybody was in the room, waiting for an opportunity. Hearing Master, well, that's the opportunity. She leaps out, just bowls over Zelfgari, grabs Rui Kalag faster than he can respond, and hops out the window down the rope that she had left secured for just such an escape. Oh ho, a kidnapping, but why? And where are we off to next? Well, these are the four couples, right? We've got the people who are trapped in a space at the beginning, and one of them kind of ate the other one in a weird way, okay. We've got the very epitome of logic, of practical need in Prodotus and Malachi Dorist. We have the very impractical lovers of Zelfgai and Spazala, and we have perhaps a couple in the form of the very practical hardy Vo and the very impractical, essentially, you know, trust fund magician master Rui Kalag. Where is that gonna go? Hmm, on to the next card.
Oh, and I will say, though Kidnaps Rui Kalog was actually its own card, pardon me, so on to the next, next card. And I want to mention one fun thing here that I have a note to put in wherever it makes sense. In a lot of classic pulpy tales, you get scene transitions where some woman faints or some guy gets hit on the back of the head with a club or any number of other things. And Devi Yasmina, the princess in People of the Black Circle, does a lot of that kind of fainting, passing out stuff for scene transitions, which is a shame because she seems overall a pretty cool, competent character, but that trope of the time is wedged in there. I thought it would be kind of fun to flip things and have the fella, Rui Kalog, suffer from essentially narcolepsy, which is activated by stress. And so when he's kidnapped, whoop, he goes asleep. But he's convinced his students and others this is actually him astrally projecting. So don't mess with his body because he's in touch with incredibly powerful magic when he's doing that. Ah. <laughs> And with all that stage setting done, I can now move a little quicker through the cards. So, final card in this scene, Spazala crawls out from under the bed and convinces Zelfgari now is the chance for them to take control of their lives and love each other freely and take all of the power in the old books and other things in the tower that their master has been denying them, you know, free and easy access to. All they have to do is use some of that junk to kill their currently vulnerable master, you know, while he's kidnapped by Vo, and maybe kill Vo while they're at it, earning the favor of the local satrap who they depend upon. That being Prototus, of course. I might end that scene in a cute note about how, oh, if only we could do the astral projection thing, if only he taught that to us, we could immediately figure out where he is. Ha ha ha, he's actually narcoleptic. But a fun way of transitioning to what they would see if they could astrally project to go see what's going on, we then cut to Vo kicking and prodding Rui Kalog, explaining her feelings about sorceries, vaguely analogous to how people who don't quote-unquote get art complain about artists. You know, you don't want to live in the real world. Then perhaps we get a little bit of exposition regarding her situation. The header for this card is, What fine currency you are! Because she has kidnapped him with the intention of trading him to his sister, the Empress, to get her men back out of slavery. Now, because Vo is very cunning and doesn't really fear or respect wizards, she had found out this relationship, which is not exactly public knowledge, not everybody knows this, not even his students. And so here she is, taking advantage of something that she had kept in her back pocket for just such an occasion. Continuing to traverse this hilly desert land between the tower and the mountain, they eventually arrive at the battlefield, the geographical midpoint of the story. This is where Malachia Dorist and her army, on her way to meet with Prodotus at the mountain, bumped into Vo and her bandits, essentially, and just creamed them. There's all kinds of fresh corpses, and it's a, basically a wedding feast buffet for the unholy matrimony of death and despair, as I amused myself writing on this card. <laughs> at first, it seems as if some of the soldiers are coming back to life. Is this the supernatural weird thing that you know, the two students have sent to kill them both? After hanging on this just long enough to mislead the reader, hopefully, it will be revealed that these are the killers that have been sent to deal with Vo, and you know, they set a clever ambush amongst the dead bodies. But Vo is prepared for this. She immediately sets about freeing Rui Kalag, at least unhooding him and ungagging him with the hopes that the killers will go, oh no, it's, you know, the brother of our ruler, of our person paying us, we should maybe not kill them, she's got a hostage. But then this is where we discover that she is ashamed of her brother, and actually makes a point of downplaying and not even mentioning at all whenever she can get away with it, the connection. So these killers don't know who he is, and they don't believe what Vo says when she says who he is. Oh, 
As you can imagine, Rui Kalog is a little like, hey, <laughs> after finding out, you know, the way his sister thinks about him. The half dozen clever, experienced, hired killers advance, and Act 1 comes to a close. Act 2 opens with what we thought was happening earlier with the mercenaries rising from the dead, quote-unquote. Zelfgai and Spazalda's summoned horrors, presumably brought about using terrible things they found at the tower in the absence of their master, sent to kill said master, and, oh, why not, arrive. I had a lot of thoughts about what this was going to be, and ultimately I thought, well, if magic is art in this, and the students don't know much and are prone to taking shortcuts, why not have something typically quote-unquote Lovecraftian show up? You know, there's a whole mess of tentacles and things. I got a bunch of broad ideas for this, but the idea behind the idea is that, okay, this big tentacled horror thing shows up, and it's like a lazy pastiche of Lovecraft, Robert Howard's contemporary who did all kinds of weird, horrible things that would sometimes show up in Conan stories, right? And a lot of people have a very surface interpretation of his work as just being a whole bunch of weird tentacle things. That's Lovecraft. That's what Lovecraftian is. You know, without getting into the deeper ideas behind his work, the themes and notions he was exploring, and, you know, the whole sanity-blasting aspect of his tales, the whole idea of trying to come up with something really strange, like a color from out of space that can't be properly identified by the human eye, and it drains the landscape. So basically, a surface interpretation of a Lovecraftian horror shows up. This forces Rui Kalag and Vo to fight back to back, with him deciding, I'll deal with the big weird magical thingy, that's more my speed, while she deals with the six armed killers. So card number two, Vo fights the killers. I have a bunch of notes on that card on how to make that fight interesting, in particular making the most use of the location where the fight is happening, the battlefield with all the dead bodies, weapons, armor, etc. laying about. Card number three, we have R.I.K. versus the horrors, and this illustrates the whole thing uh, that I've been talking about where lesser magicians just kind of riff on old stuff and have very shallow interpretations of it rather than creating their own whole new stuff. So the horrors are in action, you know, perhaps uh, one of the killers even moves a little too close and dies at their terrible tentacled hands. The other killers realize that the horror is mostly just after, you know, Rui Kalog, and so they kind of herd Vo away from this action separating the battle. Rui Kalog tries something. It's not clear exactly what he's doing because I'm not going to be like in his head telling you what he's thinking. But he sort of waggles his hand, says some words, and it doesn't work. And the tentacle thing like wallops him and sends him flying down a sand dune, let's say, you know, wounds him and maybe wounds him weirdly. It's something a little more interesting than just like blunt impact trauma. That's for future Oliver to figure out, though. Frustrated, he runs. And maybe even his narcolepsy takes him for a moment. <laughs> Falling down another slope, let's say, is the only thing preventing him from immediately being killed by the big horrible creature that dutifully chases after him. As the creature gets close again, he awakens with kind of an of course moment, and he figures out what to do. He kind of waggles his fingers, says the words, whatever, and undoes the horrors. I have a bunch of notes specifically for how this works, but it basically amounts to him changing the world slightly so that they can no longer exist in it. Back at the tower, perhaps we see Spazala cursing, you know, we'll have to try something else, but I don't know, I wrote that on the card, I don't think I need it. You see what I meant about TV habits creeping into a prose story. Anyway, next card, by the time that's resolved, Vo has fought the killers and figured out how to beat them all without getting murdered <laughs> herself. And so, yeah, the next card is Vo and R.I.K., you know, Rui Kalog have triumphed. Maybe I even tease a brief moment of attraction between the pair of them before they remember what the situation was before the fight happened, at which point Vo has to recapture him. <laughs> 
I see this being fairly quick because she is so much more physically capable than him, and to her surprise, he is not able to just waggle his fingers and turn her into a crab or <laughs> blow her up her head or whatever the heck a magician might do in the situation. As she's binding him up again, he can't help but notice that she is pretty upset and asks, like, why are you upset? We won. And she explains the context that I provided you earlier of this battlefield and her failure and these are her men. Ah, geez, you know, like, she's upset. She wants to do something about it. This is her big motivation. To take the heat off herself, she then is like, well, hey, what's with what you just you know, I heard you waggling your fingers at the big creature there and you were just kind of naming wizards I've heard about in Legends. You just invoke past masters and so then he relates a little bit of exposition that I've already told you about the whole thing of art and the arts, <laughs> as he calls it, and invoking past masters, yada yada yada. He also explains why it took him two tries because on his first attempt he was trying to manipulate a version of the creature that would have been made by someone like him who really understood the old master's work and really put a lot of depth into the creature and what it could do. And then when that didn't work, he was like, oh, wait a minute, I need to realign what I'm trying to do here with a very shallow exploration of it, more akin to the one one of my students would have had, which, oh dear, and this is the sign that they have turned on me. Hmm. He also makes it clear to Vo that it takes a bit of time to really prepare something that will have a more significant effect, which would be why he has kept her talking chatty chatty so that he could gather his mental reserves to try and psychically dominate her. Rui Kalog tries to psychically dominate Vo is the next card. In short, there is a scene in People of the Black Circle where the big evil wizard tries to break the will of the Devi Yasmina, the proud, proud princess, essentially trying to break her sense of pride and ego and, and so forth by psychically hurling her through god knows how many centuries of the history of woman and woman's struggle through all of humanity's history. I thought a psychic connection is a pretty deep thing. So what if in my story, the magician Rui Kalag connects with the warrior, the Conan figure in this, and trying to dominate them and break their pride and break their ego and so on and so forth, but finds them really impressed by the mind they're connecting with, really intrigued by the personal history they end up peeking into, and sort of fast forwarding the feelings of attraction that were flickering earlier into a full-on romantic attachment. Sorcery in Sword and Sorcery is unpredictable, man. You might get results you weren't planning on, like falling in love. This throws him out of what he's trying to do and allows Vo to snap out of it pretty quickly, which uh, leads to her being understandably pretty mad since he forcibly invaded her mind to try. He didn't plan on this going this way, but he tr was trying to kill her, dominate her, make her a zombie. Who knows, right? And so I liked her responding by being like, oh, you tried to strip down who I am? I'll strip you down with your big stupid wizard robes and your friggin' thing you wear around your neck and all this other junk that makes you look like a wizard, you big poser. And so she starts just stripping him down to basically his loincloth to take away his dignity the way he uh, tried to do with her just a moment ago, psychically. And as she does this, and certainly when she's done, sort of puffing and puffing and standing back and looking at him and just furious, but also kind of feeling some of the weird feelings of connection uh, that he was having by the end of the psychic thing as well, she notices that he's actually quite lithe and muscular. This guy goes up and down his wizard tower stairs a lot every single day, and it shows. <laughs> so yeah, is this cool what she just did to him? No. Is this cool what he just did to her? No. Is this meant to be a healthy relationship that I think readers should feel I'm endorsing and encouraging them to have in this regard? No! <laughs> but I hope it's compelling as a story. So yeah, what each of them just did, not cool, but both of them kind of were surprised by feelings and desires that came as a result of it. And they just kind of looked at each other and then she's like, all right, March, you know, jag off, you're still my kidnapping victim here. And off they go out of the scene. 
But before we leave this little setting of the battlefield, I want to just say like in the pro something like, you know, hours pass, the sun moves, whatever, a time lapse, so to speak, before a very specific cloud zooms through the sky above where all of this stuff has happened. Yes, this cloud is frosty crimson in color, veined with sparkling gold. It rotates and whirls as it, as it contracts into the distance. Yes, Zelfgai and Spazala are flying across, chasing their quarry in a pretty much direct quote, copy, whatever you want to call it, of something from People of the Black Circle, which some demonic wizardy types floated around in in that story. Will I have to change this later? Quite possibly. But for now, I just want to put it in here as a precise copy of the story I'm riffing off of, which is underlining and highlighting the fact that the two younger wizards who are in love are not great at what they do yet. Maybe they never will be. And so they are ripping something off. Though, to be clear, it's more like, you know, they're ripping off an old master they read about in a text, not that Robert E. Howard exists in this universe and they read one of his stories. We move on. New cards. Vo and Rui Kalag arrive at the edge of the set of mountains in which THE mountain is. They're close enough that they can see, and if somebody shouts loud enough, hear the many, many soldiers and so on and so forth that are all gathered around the work camp at the base of THE mountain, including Vo's men who have been enslaved to help with digging into the side of the thing where the old monastery is. But it has been a long day. Vo has lost a battle, fled one way, kidnapped a guy, fled another way, had to fight a bunch of people, been psychically dominated kind of, and then it turned into a whole other weird thing, and then traveled even further. She needs rest. So they'll take shelter in a cave, perhaps something like that within this mountain range, and have some time to kill before crashing for the night. Gotta cook some supplies, yada yada. This is where if I'm going to do it, I'm going to bring in the idea that Vo distrusts storytelling as a result of stuff that's happened in earlier stories in the book, but I won't get into all that continuity here. And yet, they gotta pass the time and neither of them sings. So Rui Kalag is like, all right, look, uh, how about I tell you what's up with the mountain? Because you don't actually seem to have any idea, which is very strange. You're just focused on rescuing your men. This is where that myth that Daryl Quioc turned me on to comes into play, as well as the layers of myth, legend, history, and reality. Yes, the myth, the legend of Guashbori, the glacier-hearted queen. I decided to kind of remix it so that it is about a tremendous peak stretching high up that it might woo the most beautiful star in the sky. This is why in life, in the story, the mountain, Mount Westarwan I'm calling it for now, is the tallest mountain by far in the region Prodotus rules over and the bordering Yarman lands. That the mountain eventually succeeded in convincing the star to come down to earth for a kiss is the idea behind why Mount Westerwan has a huge, deep hole where its peak should be. Thus, the myth interpretation is that this illustrates the dangers of two very different people falling in love, reinforcing cultural norms about marrying within your caste, let's say. That's the most common interpretation, but Rui Kalag is wise and learned, and he is very much aware of the next most common interpretation, the legend, which is that it wasn't a star, it was, they don't call this, but you know, an asteroid made of almost pure gold, hence glittering as it fell, etc. Now you know the legend, you have a better idea perhaps of why the dig site exists. Now below that we have the history, which is that a now long defunct monastic order built their monastery over the hole in the mountain, and before their order died out, used ingenious engineering, you know, I think those star-shaped angled and sloped castles from the very back end of the medieval period when cannons were in play, 
Anyway, they used ingenious engineering to seal up the monastery eventually, you know, before they died out there, capping the hole that they might continue to protect others from the evil spirits beneath. Some, like the satrap Prodotus with his dig site there, call bullshit on this, figuring the monks didn't want anybody else to have the gold if they, lacking believers, couldn't. I mean, practically speaking, how did they pay to construct, then later seal their magnificent monastery? Now, an answer to that is faith and a lot of time, but it's this history which Prodotus was given as a kind of chit uh, trading piece to like, you know, leave us alone here, buddy, by the apprentices, Zelfgai and Spazala, when he came around the tower being like, I need more in exchange for putting up with you and your crap and your whole trust fund baby routine, but their master Ruikalog was asleep, <laughs> uh, astrally projecting, I mean, oh ho. So yeah, that's what set off this whole scenario we're in. Rui Kalog then correctly guesses that Satrapas Prodotus then invited his sister, Rui Kalog's sister, Malachi Dorist, the empress of the kingdom, to bring her army to this mountain to help him dig open this place to get the gold. Gold which could be used to strengthen her hold on her kingdom, where most of the other satraps don't really pay attention to her authority. Only Satrap Prodotus, who loves her, does so. He also correctly guesses that Rui Kalog would need to invite her because Prodotus does not have enough of his own men to engage in this massive engineering project and protect his lands against bandits. Bandits like Vo. Vo asks Rui Kalog if you had known all this time about this wealth of gold or whatever in the mountain, why didn't you go get it? And he's like, hey, my needs were taken care of, I'm the big trust fund baby over here. And I didn't really feel like tackling the big weird engineering challenge of getting in there or using my sorcery to figure out a way in there just to get some gold I don't need and maybe deal with horrible evil spirits. It's at this point the Vo starts asking questions, you know, who wrote down this history and how long ago and, you know, this, that and the other thing and basically makes him consider maybe he doesn't know the whole story. And that starts to make him feel genuinely curious, genuinely inspired. He's also impressed by her inquisitive mind, which, despite her being a barbarian from some northern island, seems a lot sharper and a lot more creative than either of his students. At this point, with the second to last card of the act, my TV brain kicked in and I have a card here I don't know if I'm going to keep. Literally just says grunting and moaning at the mountain. <laughs> Which is me thinking maybe I would cut to see what Prodotus and Malachiodorus are up to and I kind of like the idea of them being in a tent just drinking wine and eating good food and even literally having an orgy of some kind while everybody else outside the tents are you know living hard soldier lives or worse slave lives. I like the idea of going from the intimate dialogue of two lovers to be in a cave with no real luxuries to intimate dialogue between these two sweating and catching their breath after having had a jolly good time with many participants and checking in on each other's actual extant relationship where Prodotus is seemingly having second thoughts about something but we're not sure what he's having second thoughts about and he's kind of checking in like you know do you love me like why do you love me and she's like I love you and he's like yeah but what would you do if you like met someone that like did it more for you and she's like well I I might leave you for him, I suppose. It would just be the logical thing to do. But you'd understand, because we're both such logical, practical people. And he's like, yeah. <laughs> hmm, and something shifts inside him. And then we cut back to the cave. And oh, in the last card, we are having a time out. This thing from the movie Out of Sight that I really love, where George Clooney, a criminal, and Jennifer Lopez, a law enforcement officer, basically take a time out from the narrative because they both have very powerful feelings for each other and they understand that they're completely at odds in their roles in society and that things are going to escalate to a point where that has to be resolved. 
the timeout manifests in them having a lovely drink and an intimate conversation that leads to a fun time in a hotel room. The next morning, he's gone, she wakes up, and the chase is on once again, though naturally their relationship is a little different. I very much want to finish the second act with at least sort of the beginnings of the timeout that these two take, because they know that when she brings him in as a hostage, no matter how it goes, either she's gonna die, or he's gonna die, or she's gonna successfully pull off her trade of him for her people, and then they'll never see each other again. This doesn't have a long shelf life, whatever this is, but they want to grab what they can, and so they take a time out, and we fade to black with some smooches or whatever. Act 3. Next morning, Vo awakens to the sound of one of her men screaming at being tortured for having disobeyed. Oh wait, it's not just one, it's several of her men being tortured to make an example to the rest. This refocuses Vo and actually changes her goal slightly, because she is no longer going to be content with getting her men back. She has to kill Malachia Dorst for this offense. So the hostage trade with Rui Kalog no longer makes any sense. She turns to him and goes, you are no longer my hostage. I have a new plan. Assuming, she says, we can trust each other. And then I want to like cut away on her being like, my plan is da 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 da. We cut two mountains over or whatever, you know, to the base of the mountain where the torture is happening. And Prodotus is going on about, you know, you, you, you friggin' guys, you do your thing or, you know, we're going to keep whipping you. <laughs> and this is all also entertainment for Malachi Doris, who's down there paying lots of attention to all this lovely torture of her enemies. Prodotus is like, ah, oh, yes, yes, and they will dig up this gold and this gold will pave your way to glory. Oh, it will be wonderful, my love. Before sneaking away back to his tent while she's distracted by the torture, etc., to get that dyed burning brush that we saw him playing with at the very beginning of the story, and he lights it. And the colored smoke, let's say green, why not, starts emanating from his tent high up into the horizon. Hmm, what's that about? Okay, let's see how fast I can get through these next five cards. Vo gives a spare costume to Rui Kalag so he can actually, you know, wear something, what with his wizard robes being torn up and a loincloth not being a hell of a lot to wear when sneaking is now the plan. Sneaking through the army, etc., before them, between them and those men up at the mountain where they're working. She'd grab this on the way to kidnap him from the battlefield where some of Malachidor's soldiers were killed, it wasn't all her men. At the time, the idea had been to use it so that she could get as close to the Empress as possible before bargaining, so that, uh, yeah, you know, she could maybe get a sword to her throat if she was really ambitious. Dressing Rui Kalag as a warrior also helps her see him a little differently and makes her start to think, maybe, maybe we could have a future together. Hmm, maybe I could change him. At the thought of change, she goes, hang on, he's a bloody wizard, and he's on my side because he doesn't really have a relationship with his sister, and in fact, if she were to be taken out of the picture, he would have a kingdom. How cool would that be? So she says, hey, why don't you just use magic? Why don't you just wave your little hands and make all of our enemies turn inside out or vanish or something? At which point we reveal the thing I think I mentioned earlier, where he is saying he's actually been having trouble lately. The muse won't come. It takes inspiration of the kind he got from being resentful of his students sending a horrible creature after him that was a shallow creation, or the desire he didn't realize he had to connect deeply with Vo. Vo, the more practical of the two, you know, berates him for this and says, oh, well, okay, well, what could possibly inspire you? I mean, what is of any great interest to you? And he looks behind her to the mountain and goes, you know, actually, I'm not entirely certain what is in there, and the monks seemed awful keen on keeping people out of there. Maybe, maybe there's something in there that could get me going. And so she's like, all right, so we got to get in there. So sneak, 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 get up near the mountain, uh, up by the monastery, which the men are having trouble getting into because it's such a fortification and had been sealed so thoroughly, so many feet 
thick, deep with bricks and whatnot by the monks. Being careful about how she does it with a you know, whisper here and a whisper there, she reveals to her men, oh, hey, I'm back. I'm here to save you. And they're like, you abandoned us. You know, her men feel betrayed. And then she's like, well, I left uh, to get the, the wizard and I was going to ransom him. And they're like, oh, OK, awesome. And oh, here he is. OK, you've got him. Let's ransom him. And then she's like, well, the plan has changed. And her men consents the connection that is formed between her and Rui Kalog. Oh boy, they feel mega betrayed now. So there's all kinds of trouble. And Mo is all of a sudden beset by enemies on all sides, except for Rui Kalog, who is like, maybe we get into the monastery, but how do they get in? It's still very much sealed. Well, magic. You see, all it took was a little inspiration, kind of like the one that comes when you know you're going to die if you don't do something about it. And to me, this is kind of like when someone has to make a deadline and they can only really work on it in the last night before it's due. How exactly they unlock the monastery and kind of slide through leaving it sealed to keep everybody else out is frankly a blank spot. I have a bunch of notes, but they're too messy to get into here. I'll figure it out in the future. Trust me, future Oliver. Don't worry, buddy. Once inside, they realize the monastery was sealed up entirely, like there's a courtyard and you can actually wander around in it like a little village before entering the mountain proper. As they begin exploring, Vo and Rikalag chat a bit about what just happened as they go through the old monastery grounds, you know, looking for the Star of Gold or wherever the heck they're expecting to find. As they are doing so, Rikalag is like, why do you want to be loyal to those jerks? They just turned on you. And she's like, I don't care. They may no longer be loyal to me. I am still loyal to them. Okay, the last five cards of Act 3. I want Zelfgari and Spazala to appear. They show up in their miserable, weird, horrible cloud thing that is a total cheap ripoff. Maybe that's how they get through the monastery. I haven't decided. Who cares? Point is, they show up inside the enclosed monastery grounds. And there's a brief confrontation, and Zelfgari's all proud because he has this, like, Magneto helmet type thing, let's say. You know, something along those lines to keep his master out of his mind. And so he's like, aha, you will not psychically dominate me, which is a whole move I know you have, and the reader knows you have too. Ha 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 ha. And then Vo kills both of them because they're impractical, and they're focused entirely on the arts and their fear of their master. They didn't wear a humble male shirt, which would have protected them from Vo's dagger. Rui Kalog is like, well... They were the worst students anyways. Takes the little Magneto helmet or whatever it's going to be precisely, a diadem, something he can wear on his head, hang around his neck, whatever. It's a powerful magical artifact for protecting your mind. And he's like, it's mine anyway, <laughs> taking my stuff back. And they go deeper still into the mountainside. As they do, they hear a tremendous roar as if thousands of people are all of a sudden getting really agitated about something outside the enclosure, outside the mountain. Well, nothing much they can do about that. Onward, inward, they go. What they're hearing is Predotus having betrayed his love. Yes, the colored smoke that he burnt was a signal to a nearby hidden contingent of the army of the bordering kingdom, the Yarma Empire, which he has decided to sell his love out to. The gold in the mountain will allow him to hire mercenaries and become the new border guy for them instead of her potentially even taking over her entire kingdom. Haha! -ha. And he sees this as the practical thing to do, since being in a position of power largely dependent on love, a love which he has confirmed the night before, could always shift, isn't very secure. Better it be based in blood and money. Much more reliable. Back inside the enclosed monastery, deeper, deeper, deeper still as we get into the mountain proper, into where the star originally hit the mountain. Well, they enter a mysterious cave of metal, which is lined in places with gold, little veins of gold, very precise, almost machine-milled 
veins of gold. And then, aha, they encounter a large, strange, bipedal creature, an alien. Bum, 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 bum. End of Act 3. Yep. Tower of the Elephant is getting up in here. If you don't know that story, don't worry, but that's a fun reference for those who do. We begin Act 4, and I can see I already want to rearrange some cards. <laughs> My first card here is the Yormans ride in. Like, we actually see the army of the opposing kingdom riding in to unite with the villainous Prototus to betray his lover, the ruler of the kingdom. But I'm thinking the betrayal, the third last card of Act 3, really should go here, followed by the army riding in, and just combine it into one moment and let the alien reveal still be the big finale of the third act. <laughs> well, there you go. You just got to hear me reconsider and edit something live in quotation marks. This is a recording, obviously. <laughs> but yes, the reveal of the fourth couple. You see, trapped within this mountain were a couple of, let's say, 12-foot-tall, vaguely humanoid aliens. They're designed I can finesse later. To me, the thing is, remembering something I read as a kid that's never left me, which was an entertainment comics, you could all DC comics, Tales from the Crypt, that kind of thing, story about a vampire and a ghoul who looked perfectly human, but whatever, he ate human flesh to survive, were both very handsome people who don't know that the other one is a monster, and they're trying to keep that a secret. Anyway, they're married and happily in love, and they go up to a winter chalet high up in the mountains on vacation, but oh no, they get snowed in, avalanched in, actually, as I recall, and they go to incredible lengths to survive without eating their beloved. The vampire just looks more and more wan as she drinks her own blood, which has diminishing returns, and the ghoul keeps trying to be like, yeah, I just hurt my leg. I definitely didn't chew big chunks out of it. Ha ha ha, don't, don't look at the bandages too closely. As I recall, the story ended with them finally being found, but they had both died from consuming themselves, essentially. The ending isn't really relevant to what I'm doing here. What I remembered as just being so compelling was two people so in love, both secretly monsters, consuming themselves rather than hurting the one they love. Now, whether or not they landed here in a very classic spaceship of the kind we'd all expect, or something a bit more baroque and magicking your way through space, which is probably where I'm going to go with in the end, this weird alien couple who I've decided are going to be both a kind of psychic vampire, you know, they drain the life energy from people they feed off of that. They know what each of them are, there's none of that secret angle here. But yeah, they crashed into this mountain and were very quickly worshipped by a local order. The monks, I mentioned. The monks decided to protect these gods of theirs who can't get home because of the damage to their ship or whatever the heck it is that got them here exactly. That's the thin veins of gold, by the way, that we're getting mined. That's the gold. Whether it's high-tech gold wiring as part of a sci-fi thingy doodler that's a bit more what you might imagine when I say there's aliens, or part of golden idols and glyphs and things used to magically get them through space. Anyway, these aliens fed off of the devotion of the monks as they healed from their terrible injuries from the crash, and eventually we're like, this is a good setup, and so we have the truth behind the myth, legend, and history. Presumably, after one too many overfeeding incidents, the remaining monks were like, what are we doing? <laughs> and sealed up the aliens before fleeing off into the countryside to make new lives for themselves, leaving behind this whole situation for my story to center around in the present day. Speaking of the present, so yes, Vo and Rui Kalag have stumbled across the surviving alien, which responds immediately with aggression in its defense and sort of assaults Rui Kalag with its psychic vampirism. Does he not immediately die because of his magic power, or because of the magical object that Rui Kalag has picked off of his dead student, you know, be it helmet, diadem, whatever? 
I'm going to leave that wide open, I think, just because of all the kind of media we're all familiar with, that will be inferred. What I want to make explicit is that this vampirism includes going into the mind of the other person, sort of, you know, making a communion that ultimately kills them. And so Rikalag gets a peek into the bizarre alien mind, and to something beyond anything any other human could ever provide him. This will come back later. So, you know, Rui Kalog is like on his knees screaming or just looking in a weird trance, whatever. He's out of it. Things are tense. And Vo is like, you know, I could try and hit the alien on the head with my goddamn, you know, Warhammer or whatever she has at hand. But she looks around at the situation and realizes like, A, trying to fight something that huge with crazy mind powers is probably a bad idea, even for someone like her. B, oh, hey, there's a semi-decomposed corpse of something that looks just like this big fella who's threatening us. And thus it gets us to the next card where... Like a lot of the cards in this last run, I gotta fill in some details later, but the header is Vo shows compassion. Yeah, I want to pull the Tower of the Elephant kind of here as well, where she shows compassion by perhaps, you know, moving her foot out of the body of the big alien's dead lover or removing Rui Kalog's foot out or something to that effect, showing respect for the dead, you know, finding something left over from the monk's whole situation that is like a, an altar you would place a dead body on or a burial hole or something, something kind of that looks respectful. <laughs> And she helps move the body and treat it with last rites of her own ideas of her own religion and stuff. Just kind of shows respect for the goddamn dead. Isolated by having taken the ultimate practicality of consuming its partner's final essence in order to live longer. And confronted with like, oh, now my partner is actually being properly put to rest. And some of these local monkeys that I used to feed off of is showing respect for that. Oh dear. Do I want to live the rest of my life just surrounded by these monkeys when, you know, I can't get home and I'm all my own. Nobody else of my kind is around. And uh, I, I saw the alien surrendering its life in one form or another and perhaps surrendering the force of life that has left in it stored in its little energy gullet or whatever to vote. This is the biggest question mark of my remaining index cards. I know I want the alien to perish. I know I want it to be like, OK, you know, being totally practical left me in a place where I'm completely alone. The details I think I can figure out further down the line. From there, it's a very quick sequence of Vo and Rui Kalog debating, what do we do next? Rui Kalog is like, I think I need to eat its brains. I think my experience just made me really want to do that. <laughs> I think it'll give me what I need. And Vo's like, that sounds insane, but also kind of brave and bold since for all you know, it might kill you. And this is, you know, maybe the crux of her appreciation for him. She doesn't get him, but she's impressed by him. I also want them to consider just being with each other, abandoning the battle outside and all these other bigger concerns, etc., etc. But ultimately, she feels responsible to her men, and Rui Kalag feels a responsibility to his sister there, Malachi Dorst, and the kingdom which has been supporting him all these years, even if it's also been kind of ignoring him. Anyway, next card, absolutely, I want him to crack open the skull of this alien which has just surrendered his life. And I like the idea of its mind being made up of gemstones that he consumes for more power and energy or whatever. <laughs> for those who aren't familiar, there's a trope name that gets thrown around online sometimes, Rule of Cool, where it's just like, don't think too hard about it. This thing that's happening is just very cool, and that's why we're doing it. I try not to indulge in it too often because you can wind up having a story where if anybody thinks about it for two seconds, it doesn't make any goddamn sense. But this is one of those moments where it just makes enough sense and, you know, fits with the character and what they're trying to do enough. I think I can get away with it. And I think it's really cool. True story. So, OK, all pumped up on this business. Vo and Rikala go outside to find the battle raging between the Yarman Empire soldiers that were waiting to pounce. Malachi Doris soldiers 
and caught in between with their backs up against the mountain they've been forced to try and break into with their pickaxes and whatnot, and that's all they have to defend themselves with. But oh hey, now we have the payoff of Rhea Kalog's lack of inspiration, etc., and trying to, you know, find the muse. Well, boy did he ever find it. And so I like the idea of him not winning the battle with one mighty spell, but perhaps evening the odds by just, you know, annihilating a huge chunk of the Yarman soldiers in some truly disturbing and awful way, which I will have fun thinking of later. Probably something extrapolating a bit off of the alien's nature and what he sees in the vision when the alien's trying to, you know, psychic vampire him earlier. Between this display and Vo grabbing her men and being like, come on guys, grab the swords and shields off those freshly killed Yarman soldiers, let's have at it, Vo wins back the loyalty of her men. Four cards left. Seeing that Malachiodorus has been betrayed and slayed by Satrapis Prodotus, she is all like, you know, you deny me my vengeance, goddammit, and rushes over to fight with him. A little side note here on that card, I like the idea that her hammer was lost in the battle just before all this happened where, you know, her men were captured, etc., and has been held as a trophy by Prodotus, who maybe tries to wield it against her. Thus we get a satisfying moment of her taking it back as she slays his ass. Rui Kalog, meanwhile, finds his sister's body and, due to the huge magic display that he just gave off here, is recognized by his sister's army as who he is, the new ruler of the kingdom. Soon enough, the Yarmans are driven off with their tails between their legs. The battle is won. Bo and Rui Kalog each try to convince the other to leave behind their life to be with the other. You know, Bo, why don't you come with me and be my queen? Well, okay, actually, according to tradition, you couldn't be my queen, but you could be number one in my harem. Okay, hear me out, you know, from Rui Kalog. And then Bo's like, no, 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 leave behind your stupid kingdom and all that jazz and come with me with my bandits and we'll find all kinds of new horrible adventures to inspire you. And he's like, yeah, but money. <laughs> well, money and tradition. And then we get to the final card of them parting in mutual admiration, but also competition, as Vo makes it very clear she's going back to her career of raiding, and she's not gonna stop raiding this kingdom just because of who's in charge. And he's like, yeah, well, I'll see you on the battlefield with X thousands of men. And she's like, I'll see you on the battlefield with X thousands plus one, gosh darn it. And they part. That mutual admiration and respect for each other is so important to me for landing the ending, I will definitely be tweaking and adjusting this to up that. And as you can tell from me getting a little quicker in how I relate it and also like, oh, this part, I am going to have to figure out some details. <laughs> the, the index cards get a little threadbare near the end. In fact, a half dozen of them have what is a very good sign that I'm unsure about a part or I know it really needs to be fleshed out which is that instead of writing on the actual card, heaven forbid I waste a whole expensive index card, I write on a post-it note I stick on the card. Could I spend more time on this before reporting back to you with the outline? Yes. But you reach a point where you just got to move on and think about other stuff and let the story germinate in the back of your mind and come back to it with fresh eyes like a while later. I really feel like I've reached that point with this story. I'm getting increasingly frustrated that I'm not outlining the remainder of the novel. I've only got one quarter left. I'm very excited to look at those stories, and I think that would make me do a rush job of quote-unquote fleshing out these parts that maybe were done a little more quickly. A luxury of writing a short story cycle with my extremely low to no continuity between tales situation going on is I can get away with this. I think if this was like a big chapter or a chunk of chapters telling one big story within the overall narrative of a, you know, chapters 1 through 50, whatever, classic novel style tale, I would have to stick on this chapter till it was done. Otherwise, the continuity could get screwed up six ways from Sunday. But I don't have to, so awesome. Why not take advantage of the system I've set in front of myself? Do I regret putting such a big story in this outlining process of mine? 
I don't think so. No, I couldn't have predicted a lot of the life stuff that made this drag out. So I can't be all mad about, you know, the length of the tail being the issue. And it would feel strange not to riff off of my all time favorite Conan story in my novel where I'm trying to build upon and riff off of the sword and sorcery genre. I guess we'll see how I feel when I'm writing the first draft. <laughs> okay, next week you will get to hear Vo loses it. I would say not the lowest point in the novel for Vo, but how she gets there. And then following that is that lowest point, the gibbet, the story rounding out this three-tale quarter of the novel. So I'm Writing a Novel features original intro and outro music by Gloria Guns, and it's hosted by yours truly, Oliver Brackenbury. If you'd like to submit a question, then please email it to so I'm writing a novel at gmail.com. You can also holler at the show on Twitter. Look for at so underscore writing, that's at so writing. Please consider sharing the show with anybody who might like it, or checking out any of the other ways you can support the show by heading to soimwritinganovel.com slash support the show, which has things like links to our Patreon, Coffee, and PayPal. Thanks for hanging out with me, and I'll see you soon.